This is Art Matters. I'm Farron Gibson. T-minus 15 seconds. Guidance is internal. 12, 11, 10, 9. Ignition sequence starts. 6, 5. This podcast is produced by Art UK, the online home of the UK's public art collections. Discover collections, artworks, and stories on artuk.org and find us on your favorite social media channel on the handle artuk.org, spelling out the word dot. July 2019 marks 50 years since man first took steps on the moon during the Apollo 11 mission. After two years of research in the space race between the United States and the Soviet Union, Neil Armstrong planted a flag on the area known as the Sea of Tranquility. It's a moment in our collective history where mankind's ingenuity, determination, and bravery enabled us to achieve something greater than ourselves. Long before the Eagle Lunar Module touched down on the moon, and indeed before man really understood what the moon was, humanity was fascinated by it. This intrigue forms part of the foundation for the Moon Exhibition at the National Maritime Museum in London. This exhibition is about humankind's relationship with the moon expressed through culture, that is, through the meeting of science and the arts. So not just a purely uh, Apollo uh, exhibition, but something that runs much deeper than that. That's Melanie Vandenbroek, curator of art at Royal Museums Greenwich and the lead curator of the Moon Exhibition. What we really wanted to express is how the moon is part of the human DNA, as it were, and how everyone who has and will ever live will have done so under the light of the moon. The moon is our constant companion, shared by all of us. And for as long as people have been depicting the world around them, it seems they have been showing their awareness of the moon and its movements in the sky. So, for instance, 35,000 years ago, prehistoric people painted the caves of Lascaux in Dordogne with horses, bulls and hunting scenes. But they also depicted what we think is a rudimentary representation of the lunar phases with 29 dots in a uh, semicircle. Two and a half thousand uh, years ago in Mesopotamia and Egypt, and text us all the way to the present in about 180 objects from cultures around the world. Through exploring imagery related to the moon across periods and regions, we get an interesting insight into different mythologies. These stories have provided fertile ground for artists to create works rich with meaning and symbolism. Pretty much every culture across any period has given a place to the moon in its folklore or in its belief system. So in India, for instance, the moon god Chandra carries the moon in the sky in his chariot, um, which is a belief that spans millennia and which we've represented in the exhibition with a, a delicate 19th century print from the British Museum collection. In China, the goddess Chang'e was bound to the moon with her acolytes, the rabbit Yu Tu, for drinking the elixir of immortality. And she holds a special place in Chinese culture to this day. And she survived, as it were, as a cultural revolution when traditions and folklore uh, were banished. Again, in the exhibition, we represent this with uh, a more contemporary uh, uh, print. It's a print by Jing Dingcheng from National Museum Scotland, dated from 1976, which is called The Youth of New China Should Fly. And it shows Chang'e in traditional flowing robes and her leaping yutu, welcoming a group of children traveling to the moon in a spaceship. 
And what's really fascinating is that current space program um, reflects the enduring influence of these deities in India with the space missions Chandrayaan 1 and 2, and in India with the rover U2, which uh, explores the lunar surface while Chang'e 1, 2, 3, and 4 orbit above. So you've got a, a really kind of enduring influence of those deities. But then you also have Greek mythology, for instance, which has long provided subjects for Western artists. And the moon goddess Selene is one figure that has inspired them. Selene, or Selene, uh, depending on how you pronounce it, falls in love with the shepherd Andimion, and she asks Zeus, depending on the version of the story you read, to plunge him into eternal sleep so she could visit him uh, every night. From this somewhat illicit love, Selene bore him 50 daughters. And wow. <laughs> this is quite extraordinary. Um, and it's it's an interesting reversal as well in terms of the Western history of art in which usually it's uh, male figures and male deities who are kind of sexually ravenous. The Roman goddess Diana would come to take on the role of several Greek goddesses, including Selene. For this reason, the story of Endymion is often depicted with a woman attributed as Diana. In a painting by Edward John Poynter in the Manchester Art Gallery collection, we see Endymion sleeping on the forest floor while Diana floats in the background. She's nude, but carries a sheer shawl that billows behind her, mimicking the shape of the large full moon to her back. It's not dissimilar to the scenes from fairy tales with sleeping princesses that we're familiar with today. Even in Japan, a country known as the land of the rising sun, the moon holds a special place within its culture. You have a, a festival celebrating the harvest moon in autumn, uh, for instance, uh, moon viewing platforms, gardens with grey walls that is wrecked in such ways as to capture the light of the moon in the most beautiful manner. And perhaps no artist expresses this uh, Japanese fascination for the moon quite so well as uh, Tsukioka Yoshitoshi, who in the late 19th century, from about uh, 1886 onwards, produced a series of prints called 100 Aspects of the Moon. As you will have guessed, it's 100 prints, <laughs> um, which it takes its inspiration from Japanese and Chinese myths, folklore, uh, the various religions, their liter literature and historical figures. And the moon is the thread throughout uh, this series. And Yoshitoshi harmonizes the various faces of the moon and the distinctive qualities of moonlight with the mood and the spirit of each scene and its protagonist. And the series, as you as you go through it, it unfolds as this great portrayal of a hundred emotions, suggesting that the human psyche and the human condition are in tune with um, Earth's cosmic companion. Of these, there were many to choose from for the exhibition. And... Perhaps my favourite is one called Yugao, the ghost, the ghost of Genji's lover. Rather marvellously, it illustrates an 11th century tale written by a woman from the Heian court called Murasaki Shikibu, who was writing for um, other women of the court. And she was herself inspired to write by the beauty of moonlight. And in the tale of Genji, the, the name of this novel, Genji uh, is a, a prince and serial lover. So he goes on about seducing all these women. And then one day he walks past a, a beautiful garden of moonflowers uh, known as Yugaro in uh, Japanese. And he asks one of his servants to collect some of the flowers. The servant returns with a scroll of poetry, as you do. <laughs> and uh, reading the words, Genji instantly falls in love with the author, who happens to be, of course, a very beautiful woman. 
She demurely declines to give her name, so he calls her Yugaro for the garden of flowers in, in which she she, uh, she resides. And of course, this attracts the wrath of one of uh, Genji's many mistresses, herself uh, dead, so so um, the ghosts of uh, one of Genji's mistresses, who kills the young Yugaro. And uh, in the print, she's shown as this wistful, ethereal ghost standing amongst her flowers and a great moon, the blue silvery light of which uh, expresses her quiet sorrow and solitude. It's incredibly poetic and moving and beautiful, but also it's got this kind of understated grief that is very much ex- expressed by the moonlight. Yeah, that escalated fast. She got killed by a ghost. <laughs> That's pretty bad. <laughs> it wasn't only myths of the moon that inspired artists. The shining orb casting a dreamy light across landscapes has inspired artists for centuries. I think it's also in a rather poetic way, actually, how moonlight will wrap uh, around a landscape to transform its colours, transform its mood, the poetic interplay of darkness and light that it creates, how it can also evoke human passions and emotions. All of this have intrigued artists. Certainly in Europe, you have a, a, a tradition from the 18th century onwards of Moonlight's reflection on vast expanses of water and on surrounding clouds, which becomes a subject for artists to display their virtues or skills. Um, there's one artist in particular who, who was based in Rome, a Frenchman, called Claude Joseph Vernet, uh, who turned moonlit coastal scenes uh, and seascapes into a genre with the following generations of artists emulating his luminous paintings. In a painting by Vernet in the Ashmolean Museum collection titled Coastal Scene, La Nuit, the artist shows a bustling harbor scene at night lit by a full moon. 18th century travelers on the Grand Tour in Italy were large collectors of these moonlit seascapes, which led to their popularity in Britain. Not long after Vernet's time came a British artist who was also celebrated for his seascapes and who occasionally drew inspiration from the moon as well. The first two paintings that J.M.W. Turner displayed at the Royal Academy in 1796 and 1797 were moonlit scenes. A view of Millbank and the Thames under moonlight and his more famous Fisherman at Sea, which are both at Tate. Turner would go on to become the undisputed master of light and of atmospheric effects. But I think it's in his more freely executed sketches rather than in his large exhibition canvases that one gets a real sense of his sensitive understanding of moonlight, which is why we decided to display this this really beautiful, sophisticated, rather minute, but also really freely executed sketch. Moonlit landscapes grew in popularity in the 18th and 19th centuries, with some artists specializing in the subject. Among them was the Pether family, including Father Abraham and his sons, Sebastian and Henry. Henry painted the National Maritime Museum's view of the Thames and Greenwich Hospital by moonlight, in which the moon seems to be enveloping the tidal river into this translucent silver blanket. Um, its ebbs and flows are almost tamed by the luminescent orb above. So it's, it's, it's a really quite extraordinary uh, painting. And the clear diffuse light of the moon draws the attention to the harmonious lines and the rhythms of uh, the architecture, the grand architectural complex of Sir Christopher Wren and Sir John Vanbroff, while you have those accents of glinting light also enlivening the small crafts on, on the river. Artists' skill for rendering light and shadow would become very useful for scientists in the age before photography. Some of the earliest detailed drawings of the moon were actually carried out by an 18th century pastel portraitist. 
A really important moment in our understanding of the moon was uh, what, what we might call the telescopic revolution, when in 1609, shortly after the invention of the telescope, two men, Thomas Hyatt in England and Galileo Galilei in Italy, look at the moon through the lens of a telescope and discover in doing so a geological world of craters and mountains and valleys. And it's it's a real paradigm shift, actually, because as the moon becomes uh, geological and terrestrial, as it were, the Earth becomes a celestial object amongst others. So it's, it's a great kind of moment paradigm shift in uh, the world of, of Western astronomers. And then throughout the 17th and 18th century, astronomers across Europe exerted their scrutiny on the lunar surface, attempting to map its terrains with increasing accuracy. But then one man, Sir Joseph Banks, the president of the Royal Society, believes that only an artist could depict the true nature of the moon. And this was a challenge he sets to John Russell, who was a royal academician, the greatest pastoral portraitist in England, and uh, one might say still the greatest pastoral portraitist in England. He was a crayon painter to King George III, crayon being the names that you gave to pastor at the time. He was the altitude to the Prince of Wales. And he depicted in hundreds of portraits the great, the good, and, and the fashionable society of his time. So a really influential artist. But uh, encouraged by Banks, by night, for 20 years of his life, he drew the moon. Helped in this by a telescope, being given uh, to him by a friend, um, but also by the eminent astronomers in his acquaintance who would advise him on uh, calculations, for instance, of the distance between craters and so on and so forth. So his endeavour was certainly scientific in, uh, in mind. And Russell had, you see, no less ambition and, and uh, in his aims than improving lunar cartography, going as far as to say that only a man conversant in light and shade, that is, an artist, as he was, could address the pitfalls of the most accomplished lunar maps of the time. This relationship between art and science is one that continues to this day. Artist James Naismith, for example, carried out a similar project to John Russell by painting sunspots in 1860. Fast-forwarding to the age of the space race, NASA formalized this relationship by creating the NASA Art Program in 1962. Its purpose was to document space exploration through an artistic lens. More than 350 artists were given access to information, enabling them to create portraits, abstract works, imaginative moonscape scenes, and more. Amongst the artists that participated were Annie Leibovitz, Robert Rauschenberg, Norman Rockwell, Andy Warhol, and others. Outside of these NASA commissions, many artists around the world were captivated by man's quest to journey into space and reflected this interest in their work. We tend to think about those, those uh, kind of household figures of pop art, but there were also people like Kiki Kogelnik, for instance, uh, an Austrian artist who uh, moved to New York, who would paint those irresistibly uh, soaring in space painted figures or stage moon happenings. So. The moon really completely permeates uh, popular culture in the 1950s and 60s. And then, as you know, the Apollo space program was cancelled in 1972. And while perhaps public interest in the moon landings waned, that of artists did not abate. Um, artists have been reflecting on lunar travel, what it means to go to the moon, uh, who goes to the moon ever since, particularly, for instance, the fact that to date, um, only 12 white American men 
all but uh, for one geologist, uh, military or test pilots, have gone to the moon. Um, so one of the questions that contemporary artists are now asking is, who will be going to the moon next? How do those people represent humanity? You know, we, you have this this um, famous uh, statement that the Apollo 11 astronauts left on the moon, we came in peace for all mankind. And uh, artists have since been questioning, well, can you really speak of all mankind if, if those are the representatives of, of humanity? So, for instance, uh, 30 years after Apollo 11 in 1999, Alexandra Mir reflected that if a woman wants to go to the moon, she would have to build it for herself. And uh, this is pretty much what she did. She built a mock lunar surface on a Dutch beach. She enlisted builders and caterpillars, but also children uh, wielding spades to create this fabulous landscape of uh, craters in in the sand. It also turned into a bit of a beach cleanup, so it was it was quite an extraordinary endeavor. And, and at the end of the day, she climbed a dune, proclaimed herself as the first woman on the moon, and to this day, she remains the first woman on the moon. <laughs> <laughs> yes. If 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 you were to look uh, for first woman on the moon on, on a search engine, she would be the first uh, hit still. Um, and then she was followed by the first German on the moon, the first gay man on the moon, the first black man on the moon. So it's a piece that's quite whimsical and quite playful, but it's actually asking quite important uh, questions. And then 10 years later, in her video work, A Space Exodus, Larissa Sansour, a Palestinian artist, um, played out questions of sovereignty and politics um, in, in this video work. She cast herself as the first Palestinote on the moon, taking inspiration from the, the distinctive uh, aesthetic, cinematic slow motion and dramatic close-up of uh, Stanley Kubrick's 2001 Space Odyssey. She lent a Middle Eastern feel to the original chords, um, and uh, with kind of arabesque chords that she gave to, to the original score. Um, the Palestinian colors replace the Apollo mission stars and stripes to evoke the dream of a Palestinian state. And then the film finishes with uh, her figure kind of drifting in space, um, kind of evoking the idea of, of people who are stateless and, and how lost they are in, um, in such a context. And then you have another artist, uh, another woman uh, called uh, Cristina de Midel, a Spanish photographer, who created a series called The Afro Notes in 2012, which looked at um, Zambia's thwarted attempts to join the space race at a time when the African subcontinent was going through a wave of um, decolonization, even as the USA and the Soviet Union were turning their um, imperialist agendas towards space. So um, there's an interesting mix, actually, of uh, fact and fiction in in the Middle's piece. But the story goes that in 1964, a man called Edouard Makuka, self-appointed director of Zambia Space Programme, trained uh, 10 men, two cats and a 17-year-old girl to go to the moon. And Demida reconstructed this in a in a whimsical series of photographs, a book and a video work in which she mixed her own photography with archival footage. And it's quite an extraordinary series, actually, with um, with Afronauts clad in uh, Dutch wax spacesuits, expressing that sense of dynamism, hope, and and that kind of manifest destiny. 
um, but also working in makeshift conditions at both ECO and Contraziapolo space program. It's clear that wrapped up in ideas and imagery of the moon is a human element that connects us to each other, where the moon becomes a symbol for something greater. British painter Chris Ophelia's Afro-Lunar Lovers, uh, which is a, a really quite extraordinary lithograph um, on loan from the Vienna in the exhibition, are both tender and fierce. We've got this couple uh, tenderly embracing under a dazzling full moon, um, actually painted in gold. But those lovers are also defiantly standing in uh, a setting which is painted in red, green and black, which are the colours of the pan-African flag. And in doing so, they evoke black nationalism and unity, a sense of solidarity across borders and across African nations. So you have this quite um, extraordinary conflation of of a a kind of romantic, loving scene and uh, something that is quite political, Uh, But also I think it's a reminder that we've all been born under the light of the moon and it's something that we all share. And this is something that you really get across the exhibition from object to object, the ways that we as human beings have been fascinated by the moon, how we've been yearning to reach the moon from the moment we realised that it was another world, how we've been wanting to reach its surface. And how the moon, in fact, across uh, time, across history, across cultures, I think can be seen as this great mirror of human emotions and passions and endeavours and um, uh, trying to reach beyond our limits. And in fact, it seems to me that when we look at the moon, what we are really looking at is uh, at ourselves. My thanks to Melanie Vandenbroek for taking us on this artistic journey to the moon. The Moon Exhibition at the National Maritime Museum is open until the 5th of January 2020. Visit artuk.org to view the full story for this episode where you can find images related to our discussion and links to exhibition details. That's it for season four of Art Matters. We'll be back in the new year with more juicy art topics. Until then, thank you for tuning in and please join us again next time.